Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Father, we thank you for uh, your answer to our prayers. Lord, we lift up many prayers for Alan Barb and uh, to see him again gathering with the saints and uh, uh, is just an answer to that. So we thank you. Uh, Lord, we do pray for our brother Rich that you would be with him and minister to his heart and Lord, uh, use him as he interacts with the, the nurses and doctors and staff and friends that come in. Lord, uh, we just pray you would use him to point people to Jesus. Uh, Lord, we do pray for our time here. Certainly that's what we desire. We desire to see Jesus, uh, to understand uh, him in a greater way, his desire for our lives, the direction he would have us to go, um, what it means to be in relationship with him and uh, the power of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. And so, Lord, all these things, we ask that you would accomplish them uh, in, in our study of your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As I said, we are in Proverbs 17. We, are, we left off around verse 18. So go ahead and turn to Proverbs 17. Look down at verse 18. Certainly, whenever we are able to gather together and consider God's word, we want to have hearts that are uh, prepared to receive what God has for us. And so that's what we have been praying Um, We're going to just jump right into our study today. Verse 18, it says this. It says, one who lacks sense gives a pledge and puts up security in the presence of our neighbor. Kind of a strange way to just jump into our Bible study on a Sunday morning. But again, we're in that section of the book where we're just taking these individual ideas that are presented to us. And so we have this one here, once again, about this idea of putting up security for another person, putting, signing a pledge. Look, if they can't pay the debt, I'll pay it for them. And we've seen it many times in the book of Proverbs already, probably at least the third time now that we are looking at this idea. And Solomon has been telling us that if a person needs another to co-sign for them or to pledge themselves on behalf of another person, then that person is a credit risk. And it's not a good idea to, to defend or to support or to back up. Look, I'll take care of their debt if they can't pay it for a credit risk. That's what Solomon is saying. The person already is a credit risk. If they had a couple million dollars in the bank, they wouldn't need you to sign the loan. If they had a steady job where they know the money was going to come in, they wouldn't need you to come up and sign the loan uh, to support them. And so Solomon has just simply been saying to us, it's a case of bad judgment to agree to put up security for a person that is a credit risk. So the only time that you should, a person should offer themselves and their money as security on behalf of another, the only time that we should do that is if we can afford to lose the money altogether. And so essentially then it's a gift. If you're willing to give a gift to another particular person and you want to tell them, look, you're going to have to work it back because you you want to teach them life lessons and things like that, that's fine. But you need to go into that situation knowing that you have a responsibility to care for yourself and your family and that the Lord might be doing something in that particular individual where he doesn't want them to have that object. And you're just sort of sidestepping God's particular plan. So you must be fully willing and fully able to lose that money. Now, I think there is a context here that's really important. And it just kind of so happens, obviously, the Lord's sovereign in all of these things. But you have these two unrelated verses, 17 and 18, and yet I think they really speak some valuable truth for us in here. So you may recall from last week, verse 17 says that a friend loves at all times and that a brother is born for adversity. Now, I would suggest to you that verse 18, today's verse, put some parameters around verse uh, 17. 
Because in and of itself, we might read verse 17, and we might conclude, well, the loving and thus the mandated thing for us to do is to loan a friend some money or to sign some document pledging security for them. Because after all, they are in a period of adversity, and a true friend, even a brother, is born for such times. That's how we might conclude. Not necessarily the case, because what verse 18 demonstrates to us is this, and this is going to be the takeaway from this verse, so I'll give it to you now. It's that love should not be without discernment. And so, yes, we want to be a loving people, certainly so, but the Lord would have us to be discerning in the exercising of that love. And so regarding this issue of, of pledging on behalf of another person, in previous studies, we've already considered there's likely a reason why the person can't afford that particular item. And so some of those reasons, they may not have the money for it. Thus, they shouldn't have it. Number two, perhaps they've spent all the money they did have. They could have had it, but they decided to spend their money elsewhere. And so now you don't get it. I'm sorry. That's just the way it works. Mom and dad says the same thing to their children. And so they they can't have it because they spent all they had. Maybe it's something that is beyond their means. And so they want to get the the Porsche. You'll be okay with a Civic. Okay, that's what you're going to get or whatever. Maybe that's the situation. Maybe it's something the Lord doesn't want them to have at all because he knows that it will bring them harm if they do have that particular item. Or maybe the Lord would have them learn some valuable lessons in the acquiring of that item in the hard way of acquiring that item. And so there's a variety of reasons why the Lord might not want that person to have it. And you stepping in because, well, I want to be loving, I want to help them or whatever, may not be God's will. And it, may, and it is not wise, according to what Solomon has been uh, explaining to us here. So what's the takeaway again? I already told you. You tell me. My wife. Love is not without. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, that's what you're telling me there. You didn't pick it up. Love is not to be without discernment. Amen? Okay. Let's go on to verse 19. It says, whoever loves transgression loves strife. And he who makes his door high seeks destruction. Now what's, being, what's going on here is two different ways of the fool are addressed in this verse. Two different ways of the fool are addressed. The first one is the one that loves drama and strife. You're a fool. If you love drama and strife, you are a fool, the Bible says. Always looking to, bring, to be embroiled in some form of controversy. Always looking to pick a fight. Somebody already gave me an amen. Always looking to pick a fight. Always looking to have an argument. Always looking for some kind of drama, some kind of strife. If you're doing that, then you are a person that loves transgression because that's where it's going to lead. And so if you're always looking for those things, people that are looking for trouble almost always find trouble. People that are looking for trouble almost always find it. Here's how the NIV translates it. It says this, whoever loves a quarrel loves sin. I just love a good fight. I just love a good argument. Well, I'll pray for you, okay? Because it says whoever loves a quarrel loves sin. Whoever builds a high gate invites destruction. Again, people that are looking to pick a fight usually end up in a fight. And so that's the first uh, description of a fool given to us in this verse. The second one, a little more, okay, where's he going with this? The second one is uh, the person who makes his door high. And you look at what? Like, what is that talking about? The idea that Solomon is getting at here when he says makes his door high, this is a person that is showing off their wealth 
or they're loudly proclaiming the wealth that they have. So they have this super high gate that's all ornate that everyone says, wow, who lives over there? So what they're doing is they're drawing attention to their wealth and proclaiming just how much they have. They're advertising just how well-to-do they actually are. Solomon says such a person that does that is looking for a problem and that they are inviting, if you will, destruction. Because catch this, if in your pride you want to draw all sorts of attention to how much you possess, be aware that you're drawing all sorts of attention to how much you possess. All right, And people are seeing that and noticing that, and now they're making plans. All right, when are we going to knock them off? All right, when are we going to break in when he's not there and steal all that he has and so on? And so criminals, other unsavory characters, they're taking notice of it. So such a person is a fool. They're inviting destruction. Verse, excuse me, verse 20 says, A man of crooked heart does not discover good, and one with a dishonest tongue, dishonest tongue falls into calamity. A crooked heart, a corrupt heart, Uh, perverted heart, all these terms have been used. And the person that has such a heart, a crooked, uh, corrupt heart, they're not just going to stumble into a good and righteous life. That's Solomon's point here. If you have a crooked, twisted, perverse heart, not just sexually, but perverse in the sense of you always just want to go the different direction of the way that you should be going, you cannot expect that if your heart is leading in that direction that the end is going to be a good and righteous life. Rather, you are inviting calamity, as it says. And so if your heart is set on evil and wickedness, don't be shocked when you end up building a life marked by the fruit of those things. Now, as far as the tongue is concerned in the verse, the second portion of the verse, the person that gives themselves to lying is actually laying a trap for themselves that they will one day fall into. So again, that verse says, and the one with a dishonest tongue falls into a trap. And and we've seen examples that we talked about it where, you know, people can't even remember the lies that they've been telling. And then they get themselves, wait, wait, you told me once before something else. And you're like, I did? Sorry. And now they're in the trap, and they've sprung the trap for themselves. It's just a matter of time. And so again, here in this verse, and and we won't spend too much time on it because we've been looking at the tongue throughout the mouth, the things we speak throughout our study of Proverbs. But again, how important it is for the one that is desiring to walk in wisdom to bring everything in their life into the subjection of Christ, especially as since it's emphasized so much the tongue. Bring our tongue into subjection to Jesus Christ because doing so, it guards us, it protects us, it keeps us from digging ourselves into holes, all other forms of calamity that Solomon gives to us here, the importance of the tongue. Today's sermon is entitled, The Kind of Mouth That Gets You Into Trouble. And some of us have that kind of mouth that just gets us into trouble. And we're like, oh my gosh, I did it again, and so on. And so we have to be very careful with what we allow to come forth from our mouth. Verse 21 says, he who sires a fool gets himself sorrow, and the father of a fool has no joy. In verse 25, if you look down, Solomon's going to say something similar. He says, a foolish son is grief to his father and bitterness to her who uh, bore him. And I, I think we know this, many of us have been there, that few things can bring a person greater joy than a son or daughter. And at the same time, few things can bring a mom or dad greater pain than when their son or daughter acts in foolishness. And when they go in a particular direction that would rightly label them as a fool, 
few take that as hard as mom or dad do. Now, mom and dad, of course, still love their son or their daughter, but there certainly is no denying the sorrow and the pain that the bad decisions of a son and daughter make have on mom or dad. And Solomon is just drawing our attention to that here. He who uh, sires a fool gets himself sorrow, and the father of a fool has no joy. So kids, be nice to your parents and do what you're supposed to do. All right, that's the takeaway from this particular verse. Tough crowd. Gee whiz, folks, relax. All right, here, you know, it's just a statement here. Verse 22, it says, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. We saw this verse, similar idea in verse 15, or excuse me, chapter 15. There it says, A glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart the spirit is crushed. And so just like we talked about that back then in chapter 15, here we see it again, that there is actually a physical benefit of a joyful and happy spirit. That when a person's heart is filled with joy, that their whole being is refreshed by that as they go about their particular day. Doctors, and I mentioned this I think before, they confirm again and again the key ingredients of recovery oftentimes is a positive outlook and a cheerful disposition. So that if a person has that outlook, that disposition going into their particular incident, physical health or a recovery from surgery or something like that, they tend to improve much faster, much, quick, much more quickly, certainly so, and much more completely. And oftentimes they'll just credit it to their positive outlook on that particular situation. So there's a value in having that cheerful disposition. Now, of course, Solomon is not referring to, you know, so everyone, let's go to the latest comedy show. You know, we'll just go, we'll just laugh, we'll just have a good time, and then all of our problems will fade away. That's not really where Solomon is going here, though I was reading this. Now, when I read science stuff, I give it like 30 seconds, and then I'm like, okay, I don't get it anymore, because I'm just not into that. And, I was like, and then I asked my friend Mark Fuller, scientist Mark Fuller, what does this mean? And he explains it to me. But I was reading this particular sciencey kind of thing about the value of good, hard laughter. You know, when you just crack up somewhere. And it went into all these things about the physical benefits because you're taking hard, deep breaths, and that's good for your lungs, and it's doing something to your diaphragm. I'm just going to throw words out now. All right, and it's doing something to your diaphragm and that that's healthy and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And blood is going to places. And, and so it was so interesting to read it, just how beneficial a good, hard laugh is. But again, I don't think that's really Solomon's only point here. What Solomon is really getting at is that is something along the line of true and lasting joy. And those things that bring peace and contentment and freedom are physically beneficial for a person. That's where he's going at, or going to. Now, the world, of course, will run from this thing to that thing to the next thing to bring happiness. And for a brief period of time, those things do bring happiness. And they'll write about it, they'll put it on Facebook, what a great time I had at this particular event. Then it's on to the next thing. Some of you may know, particularly Giants fans, that the Eagles won the Super Bowl this year. Some of you may be aware of that. And so at one morning, I was, I was getting my coffee and, and stuff, and all of the, uh, the news feeds and stuff were these stories about the Eagles or people posting stuff about the Eagles. I waited all my life for this, and my father was looking down from heaven, and, and no, he wasn't. He wasn't, all right? He's not involved, all righty? Uh, and, and things like that. But people are talking about the great joy and my life now has meaning and purpose. The Eagles finally won. You know, all these kinds of things. And then it just sort of hit me. There's going to be a letdown. Two weeks, three weeks, five weeks or whatever. Next time the Eagles stink. Whatever it may be. There's going to be this letdown where people realize this thing that I thought 
was going to solve all of my problems will take away all, you know, it'll take away all my problems. And they'll realize they're all still there. And there's still that longing in the heart. And I got all excited. I started praying for people. Uh, Lord, use this in people's lives, you know, whatever. Because I'm very spiritual. I'm very, very spiritual. Uh, you may not realize that. Uh, and you're like, no, we didn't realize that. <laughs> So, so anyhow, people will run. They'll go from the next thing, and hopefully I found it. And then what are they doing? Next weekend, they're looking for the next big event, the next big What are we going to do kind of thing. And there has to be something that's more lasting. There has to be something that goes beyond whether the circumstances, or as Luke would say, my son, whether they're lit or not. Because if they're not lit, then, you know, what are we doing here? Why are we bothering? Whatever. There has to be something that goes beyond that. And we know what Solomon is getting to is what goes beyond that is a proper relationship with the God who created you. When you're in right relationship with the God who created you, the circumstances can be dealt with because he brings a peace, he brings a joy, he brings a, a sense of, I may not understand what's going on, but he does. And since he understands what's going on and tells me he will be with me in the midst of what's going on, well, then I can continue to move forward, trusting him. Well, that changes a person's heart, and it's good for a person's heart. And so ultimately what Solomon is getting at, that which makes for a cheerful face, that which makes for a glad heart, is when a, a person rejoices in God and is busy serving him with gladness. And that just impacts a person's heart and does well for their soul. And so when we remember that, our place in our portion in Christ, joy then overflows. When we studied this verse in verse 15, or excuse me, chapter 15, I, I, this was the takeaway, stop being an Eeyore, well, there we are again. There's much to rejoice for the Christian and for the one that is walking uh, in relationship with Christ. And it'll do well for your soul, but it'll also do well physically for your body as well. Okay, so a cheerful heart is good medicine. Verse 23, it says this. And here Solomon's going to make clear this idea of a bribe, that it is considered, he calls it wickedness. Whether you give the bribe or you receive the bribe, he calls it wickedness. He says, the wicked accepts a bribe in secret to pervert the weight, excuse me, the ways of justice. The wicked accepts a bribe. He's our bribe, not bride. Brides are good. All right, a bribe. Uh, he's already told us in the past that if you offer money to pervert justice, that's wickedness. Here now he makes it very clear it's wickedness to receive money to pervert justice as well. Now one thing stands out to me here though and it's that this bribe exchange is done in secret. And that caught my attention here. It's interesting. This is worded uh, in a different version. Some manuscripts word it this way. The wicked accepts a bribe from the bosom. A bribe. So you, what you can picture is two guys coming together and kind of looking around and pulling out of the jacket and handing. And they're doing it, as it says in some of the more modern versions, they're doing it in secret. They don't want anyone to see it. They don't want anyone to know it. They're keeping it close to the, to the vest. And that's a real good indicator that what they're what they doing is wrong and that they know that it is wrong. Because if it wasn't wrong, you're like, here you go. I'll stop by in the afternoon. I'll drop it off to you or whatever. But they're doing it in such a way that nobody will know. And that is an indicator that they know they shouldn't be doing. And if you will, it's, a, it's an admission of guilt right there. The fact that it has to be done in secret. And so I would say this. Maybe it has nothing to do with bribery in your life. But unless you're like planning a surprise party for your, your wife or something like that, more often than not, if something has to be done in secret, there's probably a reason why you feel that is. That you feel like you have to hide it. You can't bring it out into the bright shining uh, sunlight. And that's probably an indicator, you know, I shouldn't even do it. 
if I can't let everyone see what I'm about to do. And so take that and file it away for the next time you feel compelled to do something that you don't want anyone else to know about. That's probably a good indicator that you should be praying a little harder about whether you should at all. Okay, make sense? All right, thanks, Kath. Awesome. Uh, Verse 24, it says, The discerning sets his face toward wisdom, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. The discerning sets his face toward wisdom. Here, there it is, yeah. Here our idea, here's the point, that the wise individual sets his heart and his mind, her heart and her mind, to grow in wisdom. They, they set their face toward wisdom. I want to grow in wisdom, and I'm going to set my face toward it. Now, the fool, on the other hand, runs from this thing to that thing, as it says here, even to the ends of the earth. They go from this thing to that thing, this thing to that thing, and they're not setting their face toward the one thing it should be set toward which is wisdom in and of itself. And so this person is searching for wisdom and knowledge everywhere but the place where wisdom and knowledge can be found. Now, I think there's a helpful picture here. Late in Jesus' earthly ministry, Luke tells us he had done you know, his ministry, and then he said to the, his disciples, he says, we, we have to go to Jerusalem. And it tells us in Luke chapter 9, it says at that time, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Some versions say that Jesus set his face like flint for Jerusalem. That's like a stone, like a rock. He was rock solid. This is where I'm going. He resolutely set himself toward Jerusalem because it was in Jerusalem where Jesus would sacrifice himself on behalf of the sins of the people. That's why he had come to this earth. Not for all this other stuff. You know, the other stuff is part of it. Certainly so. But ultimately, it was to end up in Jerusalem where he would give himself as a sacrifice on behalf of the people. And so that's where he had to go. And so at this particular time, when the time came, he set his face to get there. Well, that's the exact same idea that Solomon is getting at when he talks about setting your face for wisdom is set it like a, like a flint. This is where I'm going. This is what I must have. I'm not going to be sidetracked. I'm not going to move in other directions. I'm going to get wisdom. That's the intensity that he talks about. And I, I, that's what I think we do here on Sunday mornings. We gather to hear the wisdom of God and to apply it into our lives. That's what we do when we wake up in the morning or later in the day, whenever it is, and we sit down with our Bibles and our little notepad or whatever, or some devotional type of thing. That's what we're doing. We're seeking the Lord's wisdom. We're seeking his direction, his guidance for our lives. We're going to the place that Paul will talk about in the New Testament, the place where we can find teaching and correcting and training and all of those things that are needed for righteousness. We are going to the source. But where do most people go? Most non-believers and many believers will go all over the place looking for truth. And they'll go to this thing and that thing and they'll turn on this and I was listening to her and I read this magazine article. And they'll go all over the place looking for these things. There is a place where you can go and learn wisdom, and have received direction, and have understanding. And that's the word of God. And may each of us be that sort of person. Amen? Don't run all over the earth. Here's the answer, friends. It's right here. Read this, apply it to your life, and you will be a man or a woman of wisdom. Now, verse 25, I already mentioned when we were looking at 21. So let's go on to verse 26. It says, to impose a fine on a righteous man is not good, nor to strike the noble for their uprightness. To impose a fine on a righteous man is not good, nor to strike the noble for their unrighteous, uh, uh, excuse me, uprightness. A society or a people 
that permits injustice or the rebellion against righteousness is antithetical to the things that God created government to be. Okay, I'll say it again here. God created government to work in such a particular way and to accomplish a particular purpose. We've looked at that in many examples already. Now, don't look at the examples of government in our lives. Many of them fail. But the purpose that God has put government in its place is to keep order and maintain order within a society. Unfortunately, many of those governments permit injustice or encourage it, or the people of those governments that are trying to have justice out there, they rebel against that in unrighteousness. The society that does that is not creating a society that will be marked by peace and order. Okay, does that make sense? I said a lot of things right there. All right? But the society that allows for injustice is not creating a society that is going to have peace and order in it. And so whether it's an unrighteous ruler that, as the example says here, that is imposing a fine on one of his righteous subjects, well, they'll pay it. They're good people. What are they going to do? You know, they're nice people, whatever. So they're imposing a fine on the righteous man. Or it's an unruly people that is taking advantage of the kindness and, of, and uprightness of a righteous king. Either one of those particular behaviors, either one of those instances, as it says in our verse there, is not good. And so when injustice is allowed to fester in a society or is even encouraged by its leaders or the people rebel against righteousness, either one of those behaviors is not good. And I'm going to add there, it's not smart. It's a dumb decision when that is taking place. There was a philosopher, his name was Thomas Hobbes, and he wrote of the need for an orderly society to have what he called the social contract. You heard of this when you were in school here? I remember I was on a, I was on a train uh, going up to New York City with my son, and we, we pulled up next to the, uh, the hockey arena for the Devils. Uh, and th- that should have given away what was about to come. Uh, anyhow, uh, at the hockey arena for the Devils, and these six drunk guys got on uh, the train. And from the moment they got on, screaming, yelling, causing all kinds of trouble, uh, obnoxious, and I'm just like rolling my eyes, you know, this kind of thing. Uh, but I got my little 10-year-old or something with me, my 8-year-old son here next to me. And then finally, one of the kids, one of the guys, they were adult men, but they were like 22, 23. One of them started hitting somebody on the train with his hat because there was this stupid conversation, and, and one guy disagreed, I don't know, kind of, and he started hitting the guy. Now, I didn't realize the guy that was being hit was part of this crowd of drunkards. I, I just forgot or whatever. I didn't realize. So now I thought he was hitting some innocent person on the, on the train. And that bothered me. And so I, I said, it's probably a bad idea. Um, but I had my son. He's eight. He could help me. I, I, I said, hey, knock it off. I said, knock it off. And he looked at me. I said, look, the moment you got on this train, you've been causing trouble here. Are you not familiar with Thomas Hobbes' social contract? This is what I said to the guy. And he was like... I said, for a well-ordered society to work, we all have to be working together. And you guys haven't been doing that. And the guy was just like, I guess you're right, you know, (laughs) whatever. (laughs) And I was like, "Woo!" I thought I was going to die or whatever. But the idea, Thomas Hobbes' idea is that in a social contract, you don't have to necessarily create all these laws to keep people in line. But there's this social agreement we have with one another that, look, we're all moving in this direction. Everyone just keep, let's go. We're going in this, and we're in this together. And those that will stand up and say, well, you know what, let's pervert justice 
for some money or let's take advantage of these people over here because they're not going to say anything or whatever. You're creating, you're working against a well-ordered society. And as Solomon says, it's not good. And as Greg says, it's dumb. It's stupid. We all want to just live our lives and move ahead. We don't want to be bothered by things that don't need to be bothering us. And that's working against it. Does that make sense here? All right, so you can remember my little story about the guys coming on the train. All right, verse 27 says, Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. A cool spirit, hey, dude. Uh, that's not, it's talking about relaxed. It's talking about being calm. Verse 28 says something even similar. Look at that. It says, Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. So again, we're talking about the kind of mouth that gets a person into trouble. And we've seen Solomon talks a lot about the mouth and how the words that come out of a person's mouth are incredibly revelatory. You learn a lot about a person by the things that they say or how often they're saying things and so on. And here Solomon talks about rash speech and a quick temper, how they reveal a lot about a person's shallow character. Rash speech, rash speech, and a quick temper. Whereas a cool, measured response, how those are also indicators of a person's character. So the person who just lets it out, it reveals a shallow character in that person. But the person that stops, takes it in, contemplates, is careful with the words that they are going to say, how that reveals that that person has an elevated level of understanding. That's a person of wisdom, or at least appears to be a person of wisdom. Notice what he says there. He even goes on to say that a fool that keeps silent people are going to presume that that fool has great wisdom just based on his or her decision to keep silent there. So not saying anything leads people to think you're wise. And being a person of few words, it's so generally taken as a sure indication of wisdom that even a fool can gain the reputation of being a wise man if they would just simply hold their tongue. And we're not fools here, right? No one in this room is a fool. We checked at the door when you came in, all right? We're all desiring to walk in wisdom. Hold your tongue. It's a mark of wisdom. Matthew Henry, he said this. He said, the wise individual spares his words because they are better spared than ill-spent. Better not to say anything than to say the wrong thing. And the wise individual is a person of few words, lest the words he does speak uh, be harmful when they come out. Okay, let's go on to chapter 18, a few verses there today. It says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire and he breaks out against all sound judgment. Now, when a believer isolates themselves from evil, that's a wise decision. And, and I've given you examples of that, particularly when I first came to know the Lord. I had been involved in various things and now I'm, I'm, I still have my friends but now, you know, I'm trying to walk with the Lord and stuff. And so there were decisions I had to make where, I'm sorry, I can't go to that place with you and I can't get involved in that particular thing. So in that sense, I isolated myself from evil. That's wise. I've been giving examples out. You can either walk down this path, which is going to lead you to this place, a good place, we'll say, or you can go down that particular path and it's going to lead you to a bad place. And what we said was sometimes you're just better off not even being on that path altogether because you won't get involved in those particular things. So there's wisdom in isolating yourself from evil. If you want to keep yourself from the way of evil, don't even go down that particular path. That, however, I don't think is what Solomon is getting at. I'm confident that's not what Solomon is getting at here. 
Uh, Because here he says, if you isolate yourself, you're seeking your own desire, you're breaking out against sound judgment. He's suggesting you not isolate yourself. And he's not referring to not isolate yourself from evil. What he has in mind here is the person who isolates themselves from others because they don't want to hear what others have to say. And so if I ask what others have to say, I ask godly counsel on this particular instance, they may tell me something I don't want to hear. And so what am I going to do? I'm not going to ask them. I'm going to pull back from them. I'm going to do what I want to do, and I'll deal with the consequences later on. He says here, so that they might seek their own desire. They don't ask the question. They don't fellowship around that particular thing, lest they get an answer they don't want to hear. And so whether it's the person who isolates him or herself from the thoughts and opinions of others, and I'm just going to go on my own, and I'm going to create my own way, and people do this, and then they create this following on the Internet or something like that, Uh, But they they break away from sound judgment or they find places that will support their opinion here. Or it's uh, this idea of drifting away from fellowship and interaction with other people so that in the secrecy of being alone, you can do whatever you want. But if you you gather with the saints or whatever, people are going, you doing all right? You okay? I haven't seen you in a while. You all right? I can just see something in your eyes, in your face. You don't look well. What's going on? Well, people don't want to ask that question, or they don't want that question asked of them. And so I'll just break fellowship altogether. I'll isolate myself so I can do whatever I want, and I don't have to face the looks. I don't have to face the judgment that people are bringing against me, all this. The wise individual, the person who does that, does it against sound judgment. The wise individual pursues fellowship, fights for fellowship, because we can be together and not be in fellowship with each other. Okay, I'm not saying we're mad at each other, but we could come together here on a Sunday and simply be acquaintances. Hi, how are you? It's nice to see you again. It's a nice outfit you have. Why don't you get your hair done? Alrighty, and just be acquaintances with one another. We can go to home groups and gather. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a more advanced Christian. I'm on the second level of Christianity. I go to a small group as well as come on Sunday morning. And we can go to those particular places and not really have fellowship with each other. So we went to fellowship time Fellowship hour with each other, but still didn't necessarily fellowship. Fellowship, it's koinonia, it's a sharing of a life with one another. And we don't always do that when we gather. And I would suggest to you, we have to fight for that. We have to work for that. We have to invest ourselves in the life of another person. We have to open up and be honest about what's going on in our hearts as we seek to understand what is going on in their hearts. That's how fellowship is developed and can be maintained. And so it's the wise individual that pursues it, that fights for it, because in it is strength and support, all that is needed to run this race. So don't pull away. And when you feel, I just want to get away, that's the time when you've got to fight all the more to gather with the saints and to share life with other people. Amen, friends? Uh, Let me just tell you, I've seen it so many times. So many times a person is just sort of drifting a little bit. And then they just, you know, they break away and they break away and they break away and it's not good. Just as Solomon says here, it's going to lead a person to a place of destruction. Don't let it happen to you. Those are the times you have to focus yourself even more. I need to be with the saints and I need to share what's going into my heart in truth. Okay, friends? I say that because I love you. Verse two, it says, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding but only in expressing his opinion. Facebook, uh, Twitter, you know, and so on. And again, nothing, we've said this before, so again, nothing is more characteristic of a fool than contempt for instruction 
and a lack of concern for understanding. All right, and nobody can tell me. I'll do my own thing. I don't want to hear it. I'll figure it out on my own. All those things, that's foolishness. The fool refuses to listen, and thus they have no understanding. They refuse to listen to those that do have understanding, and they're determined to go their own way. The King James Version, I think, really catches the idea of what Solomon is saying here. Uh, And the King James says this, A fool hath no delight in understanding, but that his heart may discover itself. Ever hear that? I just need to be true to my heart. I just want to, I want to be true to my heart and where my heart is leading me. That, my friends, is a bad idea. And some people will say, no matter what happens, at least I followed my heart. No matter what happens, at least you follow your heart. What if your heart leads you to jump off a cliff? Is that a good idea? No, no, I'll just tell you so everybody knows. No, it's not a clear idea. Our hearts are deceptive. We have to know that. Our hearts are deceptive. And the heart's going to want one thing today and then something completely different the other day or tomorrow. And so we have to go to a source of constancy and truth. Our feelings, what our heart is feeling, changes. The leading of our hearts is fickle. And Solomon, you remember back in 15, chapter 15, he said, The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feeds on folly. And so the wise individual listen to this, doesn't allow their heart to lead them. They allow wisdom to lead their heart. And that is, of course, the wisdom of God. And that's the type of people that God would have us to be. And so go to the source of wisdom and allow wisdom to lead your heart, not the other way around. Now, verse 3 says, when wickedness comes, contempt comes also, and with dishonor comes disgrace. Paul will say in the New Testament, that whatsoever man sows, that will he also reap. And so here, the person that pursues wickedness, you're going to reap the fruit of wickedness. Here he talks about dishonor, disgrace, contempt. Sin, sin brings disgrace, and the sinner brings contempt with him. To those that are in that situation, they're either going to respond to the sinner or it's going to engulf them as well. Now, I think the problem, if I could say, in my opinion, is that oftentimes the the sowing we've reaped, but oftentimes the sowing takes a while. It takes a while for that which we have sown to begin bearing fruit and for the crop to come up. And it causes many to conclude, well, I guess I'm getting away with this particular sin. Or I guess God's word, yeah, I know it says it, but I guess that doesn't apply to this day and age, or God's word is not true. And because it's taken a long time for the, the crop to be produced, They think they're getting away with it. Don't be deceived. Again, let me read to you uh, Galatians 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. Don't even deceive yourself into thinking, well, just because there's no consequences for my action yet, that there will never be consequences. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. If you sow to wickedness, you will reap the fruit of corruption. Verse 4. It says, the words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. When a wise man or woman does speak, and remember, they're reluctant to do so, but when they do speak, their words reveal a deep well of knowledge and a deep well of understanding. And you sit there and you're like, oh man, how do you know all this stuff? Charlie yesterday during our prayer breakfast, Charlie Hunt shared his testimony as he overheard, this before he became a believer, he overheard his sister referencing the word of God. And she seems so wise and brilliant. 
And of, it's his little sister. I mean, of course she's not wise and brilliant. She's my little sister. And yet she knew the word. And so she began to communicate the word, and he overheard it. And he was like, oh, my gosh, how did she get so smart? All right. But the, am I, did I tell the story kind of right? Yeah. All right. Very good. I, I, got, I didn't want to say that. <laughs> I didn't want to say that. All right. But when that wise man or woman does speak, their words reveal this deep well of knowledge and understanding. Solomon, notice he calls it a fountain. And the fountain has this sense of a continually flesh, uh, fr- fresh flowing body of water. Big difference between a fountain and a cistern. You know, that cistern sits there and the water gets a little stale and, and all this thing, oh, I don't want to drink it or whatever. But that fresh flowing fountain of water is just what you need when you need it in that particular moment. And he also talks about it from this perspective of it's a source of deep waters. And so the person of wisdom, based on the word of God, isn't giving cute little platitudes, not throwing out nice little sayings or, you know, you could put that up on your wall or whatever, but they have deep truths that they're able to communicate to other people. So again, the words of a a wise man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is this bubbling brook, and that's what we would all desire to be, certainly. Verse 5 says, it is not good to be partial to the wicked, or to deprive the righteous of justice. Same idea from chapter 17, verse 26. Anytime an official perverts justice and shows partiality to the wicked, that official is setting themselves up against God because they are circumventing the purpose for which God allowed governments to be established. And so to show partiality to the wicked, it's essentially to condone their wickedness. And the Lord is not pleased. It's an offense against God. It's a wrong against mankind. And the Lord stands opposed to that. Verse 6 and 7, let's take them together. It says, A fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. A fool's mouth, uh uh-oh, some have been there. A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. And as I said earlier, some people just can't help but get themselves into trouble. And more often than not, it's their tongue that gets them into that trouble. It seems that the loudmouth fool is always trying to pick a fight or start trouble with others. And as I said earlier, if you're looking for trouble, you generally find it. And again, it's oftentimes the mouth. The mouth is so revelatory of what's going on inside of a person's heart. And we can know so much about a person. And so here's, I think, the takeaway for us. Until you get your heart under control, be extremely careful with what you allow to come out of your mouth. Because what comes out of your mouth, when it comes out of the mouth, the heart speaks. The heart speaks from what comes out of the mouth here. And so get your, until you get your heart completely under control, be very, very careful because you're inviting trouble. Notice he says a beating, ruin, a snare, all of those things. So guard your heart and certainly guard your tongue. One final verse this morning, verse 8. It says, the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of of the body. This uh, whisperer, again, that's the gossiper. And we looked at it last week that the, the gossiper, uh, about the gossiper, last week what we learned, verse 4 of chapter 7, is that the, the listener to the gossip and the teller of the gossip are both equally wrong. Remember we said that, some of you that were here, that, that the one that's listening to it and the one that's telling it are both equally wrong. That if there was no outlet or no, uh, nobody there to receive the gossip, well, then the gossip magazines would go away and the TV shows that 
do all that stuff, the TMZs and so on, they would go away. And your friend would go away, that person that wants to come and tell you that nest ju- juicy bit of information. So both the listener and the gossiper, the one telling it, are responsible there, and they're sinning in listening or in telling. Yet, I think we know that, right? Yeah, I got it. That's easy. Yet we still want to listen, don't we? I found myself this week flipping by TMZ. I'm the one who said it last week and said, I don't know why people watch those shows. Oh, my gosh, Princess Diana, who knew, you know, or whatever. And here I am. I'm drawn right into it. Why? Why are we drawn into it? Solomon tells us here because they're like a delicious morsel, and I'm drawn to those two, okay? They're like a delicious morsel. We just want it. What do we call it, someone? Ooh, I got a real juicy one, let me tell you. All right, we're drawn to it. We want to hear the gossip. It appeals to our flesh. And so then even against better judgment, we oftentimes give ear to those things. And Solomon reminds us here that though they may taste like delicious morsels, they may go into your mouth and be like, oh, that's good. They go down, and all that's wrapped up with them, they go down into the inward parts of our body. And they take up residency there. And he goes on to say that it's not good. It's not good for the person being gossiped about, and it's not good even for the listener there. John Corson, he wrote this. He said, a tongue three inches long can destroy a man six feet tall. I think that says sick. That's wrong. Six. All right. But a tongue three inches long can destroy a man six feet tall. Again, this is not gossip is not some innocent, cutesy behavior. And it's not some minor character flaw. You know, you're getting older now. You should probably move past that or whatever. Telling gossip and giving yourself to gossip is destructive. And it's destructive to the people being gossiped about and the person that is receiving that information. So again, if that's an issue in your life, I think we ended with this last week too. I'm sorry. Uh, But if that's an issue in your life, bring it to the Lord. Saying, Lord, you've got to root this out of my life, and I submit it to you. And the Lord will he'll do some good work on your life if you're uh, truly repentant in that particular area. Amen? Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for very practical truths here uh, in this book of Proverbs. And, and again, Lord, there's 10 different topics or more that we considered this morning, and you know where each of us are at. Uh, you know which of those Proverbs Uh, resonate in a stronger way with each of us. But ultimately, Lord, here's my prayer, that we would simply be changed or impacted as a result of gathering together. Lord, that your word uh, would resonate in each one of our hearts, that it would seek down into the deep places. And Lord, from our time together and from this time considering Proverbs 17 and, and, and 18, that we would be a changed people as a result, that you would have used your word to bring light and the entrance of it into our heart and to expose darkness and that that darkness would be rooted out as a result. So cause each of us to grow, stir our faith. Lord, give us the ability uh, to walk in your ways as we rely on your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Sermon Podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.